You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. Welcome to episode 90. Fran, don't don't think I didn't hear that little slip up there. I, I, know you I wanna, bit my tongue. I know you want to start over. But We're not starting over. It's too late now. I kind of bit my tongue and then I was like, I wonder if anyone noticed that I did that or if it was just in my head, but I guess yeah. I guess it was pretty obvious. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was pretty obvious. So much for people are gonna mock you online for, for weeks now. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. You have a pretty cool episode coming up today, right? Yeah, you know, it's I always find some of our our personal favorite episodes are episodes where we know little to nothing about it, but we find it very intriguing to us and and we become little kids. And I always think about the Ducks Unlimited where we we mm-hmm. spent a half half an hour asking kid questions about ducks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> for what we can learn but it it was a fantastic episode mm-hmm. and uh, and we got a lot of feedback from our listeners on that episode too um yeah. so i'd like if you can get me in that little kid zone which is which is pretty oh that sounded bad all right if you can get me to act like a little kid <laughs> you know it's <laughs> maybe we should have restarted i don't, I don't no <laughs> no we're going we're going not but, breaking that streak but the good, good news is yeah, the good news here oh, oh. is this is a topic we know absolutely nothing about. Yeah. So we should have yeah. lots and lots of really good questions. We're really excited about this. So with that, I'm going to introduce uh, Tanya Gap. Oh, man, wow. we really are screwing up today. Tanya Dapke. I'm bad with last names, but that's not one I should have been bad with. And she's from the Academy of Natural Sciences. She's going and- to tell you it's actually pronounced Dapke. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we're going to talk about genetic barcoding in insects, which is something I, like I said. I, I didn't even know it existed. Me neither. I I. Personally, I don't really know what it even means, but that's why Tanya's here because she's going to tell us. So, Tanya, could you introduce yourself, talk a little bit about the Academy of Natural Sciences and uh, and what you're doing with genetic barcoding? Sure. Hi, my name is Tanya Dapke. I am the lab manager and the um, uh, pro- uh, project manager for projects here at the Academy of Natural Sciences. In the Academy of Natural Sciences, there's actually like a little research center that not a lot of people know about. It's called the Patrick Center for Environmental Research. It was started by Dr. Ruth Patrick in uh, the 1940s. It officially became part of it, I think, you know, more like in the 1950s and 60s. She paved the way for this idea that you can look at the um, biota of a stream like algae, diatoms, macroinvertebrates, um, and then also look at the stream chemistry to determine the health of the stream. So what I do is I go out to streams all over the Delaware River watershed. We also have projects in other states like Texas. Um, We might be going to Tennessee again later, and we sample those streams. So I take bugs out, I uh, identify them, and I count them. And then using biometrics, I calculate the health of the stream. So the more different kinds of bugs there are, and the more of them there are, the healthier the stream. If I see a low, you know, richness, like just not a lot of species, then the stream's usually like, it's icky, we don't like it. Um, (laughs) But I, um, the reason why I know so much about genetic barcoding is before I had this job, I worked at the University of Pennsylvania for a man named Dr. Daniel Jansen. Dr. Daniel Jansen um, helped to 
you know, push this idea forward um, by barcoding Lepidoptera, which are the moths and butterflies and their parasitoids. So those are flies and wasps that actually like eat the caterpillars from the inside out. Parasitoids are some gnarly, gnarly insects. And um, he barcoded like he wants to barcode everything. So I can talk about that later. But I worked for him for 15 years. So I could probably get in the Guinness Book of World Records for having removed most legs off of insects. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) while I was there, I got my graduate degree at University of Pennsylvania. And my final project was utilizing genetic barcoding on stream macroinvertebrates. So those are the bugs that I study in streams. So now I have this job that like utilizes all the things that I worked really hard to get. And um, I really like it. Can I ask a little kid question already? I want to get, I'm already, I want to get off topic before we even get to genetic. So, and this was something that took me by surprise probably like 10, 15 years ago when I learned it, but most people are looking at insects thinking, oh, I see dragonflies flying around, butterflies flying around, bees are flying around. Why are you looking at streams for insects instead of flowers? Um, because they live in the water. So I'm looking at basically like the larval forms or the nymphal forms of those dragonflies. And sometimes um, a certain type of moth lives in the water too. Um, but those, it's imagine like, you know, you're thinking about a forest and there's all kinds of different insects that live in the forest. Well, the same is true for a stream. It's just a different type of habitat, a different type of ecosystem and insects will live all over there. So there's algae that grows in the rocks and then there's different kinds of insects that will actually like live on those rocks and eat the algae off of it. And then there's other insects that will eat those insects. And then there's fish that will eat them. And then dragonflies eat everything. (laughs) And do Um, they, they stay in the water for their entire life cycle or do they eventually come out and then that's what we see? It depends on what kind of insect you're talking about. So, for example, you said dragonflies, so we'll use dragonflies. They're some of the most fun insects to talk about. Um, so their nymphal stage is under the water, so the eggs hatch in the water. The um, nymphs use different types of respiratory methods to get the oxygen off the water. So they'll have, like, gills um, that will absorb the oxygen. Um, and dragonflies are some of the most efficient predators on the planet, like if you think about a lion, a lion will get its kill three times out of ten. A dragonfly will get its kill nine times out of ten. Wow, wow. Dragonflies will kill anything that moves. They are very efficient. They're very good. And then when it's time for them to come out and become adults, you see them flying around. So they're in their adult life stage. Usually they stay around a certain body of water. Those uh, That life stage of the dragonfly is also just as deadly. Hmm. Really interesting. And I, So I knew that about dragonflies, but until now I really didn't – Think about, okay, yeah, all the insects that come, start in the water and then come out, there's probably just as many that stay in the water for their entire life cycle. Yeah. So yeah, didn't even um, think about that. types of beetles will, like riffle beetles, that whether they're um, in their larval stage or their adult stage, they'll live in the water. Um, there's so many. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, I could go on and on, but I know you had another <laughs> yeah. question too. I, I did, and you know, and it's because it's something that kind of, gets brought up every few episodes for us and it's it's water quality or water health and and we kind of talked about that with Joe Cermilli for Meat Eater we mm-hmm. we talked about it with floating islands but as someone that's going out and monitoring stream health overall like locally what is your overall opinion of stream health and if it's getting better or worse Um, it really varies. So I study mainly the Delaware River watershed. And if you move to the places in the headwaters, so that's where the big Delaware River starts. If you go all the way up to New York, 
past the Poconos where all those little tiny tribs are and they start to bleed into each other and then they become this big, huge, beautiful Delaware River. It really all depends on where you are in the river, what kind of inputs are going into the river. We're not going to... I can't say overall what it's a wonderful assessment. It's pristine. That's not true. Um, certain rivers are better than others. Certain areas along the Delaware River are better than others. What really matters is connecting with the people who live there and talking to them about, like, don't dump your trash in the river. Don't dump your paint in the river. Don't, you know, and that's hard if you're a mechanic and you're right on the other side of the river. You mm-hmm. Sometimes you can't help that non-point source pollution of just things that, like, dribble off the cars that go in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more about... <sighs> getting people to make the river of health a priority. That's the biggest um, obstacle that I see is just making connections with the local communities and helping them to understand that like you don't have drinking water, you don't have a healthy environment or you don't have all the things you need without healthy water. Um, Water quality varies from place to place and in places where people care more about it, the streams are healthier. I as a kid, you know, and and Tom's going to laugh at me because I always said this, but growing up in Levittown, like along the, the Delaware River. Levittown, Pennsylvania? Yes, yes. I live in <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Did you grow up there or did you end up moving? No. Okay. No, I'm from Delco. Oh, okay. Yeah. But you don't have that Delco accent. You're hiding it very I, well. I, yeah. I had to I had to become grown up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I, I lived there on and off for, for 25, 30 years. Um, oh, wow. But okay. as a kid, the Delaware River – like we were told, don't even dip your feet in, you know, and there's, oh, wow. you know, and, and going along through Tullytown, there's a lot of industry on the yes. river, on the yes. PA side um, and, and the New Jersey side. So I would imagine years and years when there was really no, or I, I guess I shouldn't say no regulation, but uh, there there wasn't the same key of keeping it clean. But I don't hear the same rumblings about the Delaware in the same area that I used to hear as a kid. And yeah, I would imagine I think it's definitely that's definitely improved. For sure. Yeah, I think things have gotten a lot better since, you know, the time when we were children and I grew up in Delco and you don't play in the Darby Creek because it smells like rotten eggs. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) it's unfortunate um, that the streams were that bad and it does take a long time for um, the resilience of those streams to to, when when those inputs that are degrading them stop, they need a little bit time to bounce back. Um, So, yeah, it is better. I, I don't. You can drink the del- water from the Delaware River. I think it's a lot better once it's gone through the, the plants and everything. Okay. There's a big push to say that, like, these are fishable, swimmable um, waters, and we want to get people to, like, love being there and to interacting with it and to care about it, to take care of it. And and I love seeing, especially in that area, some of the change, like the Bristol Wharf, way, yeah. way different from when that I was, was a kid. Beautiful. And And people yeah. can go to that park and enjoy it where it wasn't – uh, you know, it was as a kid, you know, that wasn't a place you went it after dark. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. So it was, it, it's changed greatly, which is, which is an awesome sure. thing. But, you know, like anything else, nature is resilient mm-hmm. and bounces back if we give it the chance to bounce back. Yeah. Um, so it's nice to hear that. I, I guess my other question for you for this type of work, are there organizations that you partner with? Um, when yeah. you do this work to like anyone in particular, or is it a, a multitude of organizations that you work with? There are so many organizations that we've partnered with. Um, first and foremost, the William Penn foundation funds a lot of the work along the Delaware river and the specific project called the Delaware river watershed initiative. That's a mouthful. 
So I can send you the website. It's okay. called fourstatesonesource.org. And if you go on that website, it lists all of our partners from like little local watershed groups all the way to larger research um, organizations like Stroud Water Research Center, which is also in Pennsylvania. And we've formed this huge partnership since 2013 to make the Delaware River a priority. And so there's lots of, you know, for the first couple of years was just monitoring again a baseline. And now we're doing those active projects um, to help bring it back awesome yeah we'll we'll definitely put that mm-hmm. link on our yeah. uh show notes on our website so we'd love to do that but i, I guess we should backtrack before we yeah. completely sure. get off <laughs> know, <right>? off topic <laughs> so we did mention genetic barcoding and yes. that was something that i know that i know the terminology i don't i, I don't I, even know the I, terminology i don't i i don't understand what it means as far as relating to what you do and sure. and I was hoping that we could just start there and then work yes. our way out. Not a problem. Okay, so what is genetic barcoding? Barcoding is when you sequence a small portion of the DNA of an organism. So it's basically like a taxonomic method, which is a fancy word for I'm going to describe a species. Um, but it uses one or more standard short genetic markers in the organism's DNA to identify it as belonging to a particular species. Um, this method is used to uh, build up a library of sequences. And so the, the, the DNA uh, that I'm most used to using is the CO1 gene. The CO1 gene is used most often for animals. And the reason that we use it for animals is because it's a tiny gene that's found in the mitochondria. Plants, you have to use a different kind of uh, gene because obviously they don't have mitochondria. Um, and the, it's really fast. It goes a lot quicker. Um, it's great. So I'll stop there before I go any further. Do you have any questions about that? I do, but it's probably out of sequence. <laughs> I, the first thing I thought of as you were you were describing this, I went right to Jurassic Park. Yeah. When they're explaining <laughs> uh, how they created the dinosaurs. And I'm like, oh, well, are you using – genetics from both male and female does it matter if you're using a male or a female like that was my first question and i know i'm probably way out of sequence and way (laughs) further ahead no so the co1 gene is in the mitochondria of all animals so it doesn't matter the gender of the animal it doesn't matter what kind of animal it is what's more important is the primer the primer is a fancy word that just is describes another molecule that attaches to that co1 molecule and helps to sequence it out Right. So the CO1 gene was picked because if you compare two different species CO1 gene sequence, you can tell the species apart even with as little as a 2% difference. So this is huge. You don't have to sequence the entire genome, which is costly, it's difficult, it's, it's a pain in the butt. There's so many problems. You need all these different primers, all these different stuff. With the CO1 gene, you need one primer. You need one lab that knows how to do it well, and you're good. I, I guess – all right, here's my other question again. Sure. I, it's totally <laughs> – Tom's laughing at me already. <laughs> you know, I'm, the other thing I'm thinking about is, all right, like I, I did Ancestry.com, and mm-hmm. I, you know, they send in my DNA. They analyze it, and then they say, oh, here's the regions that and, – and I know that comes because people – Here's where all, all your the, warrants are, are <laughs> coming up and all that. Yeah, <laughs> They're all – they're not outstanding. So um, <laughs> there's – and I know there's people from all over the world doing this as well, so they have a large base. So right. is that happening with genetic barcoding in insects as yes, well? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So that's like, that's a good segue. So um, the whole thing that I participated in, which was when this project first started, 
was to build up that library of sequences because our goal is to catalog all the different species on the planet, whether it be insects or birds or mammals or plants or whatever it is. Um, I just happen to work on insects. So there is a repository of uh, DNA sequences. It's in a couple different places, and usually they collaborate with each other because once you get that genetic sequence data, you can upload it to any database. So uh, an example of this that a lot of people know is GenBank or Bold Systems, which is Barcode of Life um, uh, Initiative project. And those ones you can just go, you can search, you know, all different kinds of things. You can search for a species, you can search for a group of animals, and it will show you the picture of it. It'll show you where it's found in the world. It will show you all the different other um, animals that it's related to. We can do phylogenetic analysis with this type of data, but that's another big word. And I'm sorry, I get really (laughs) excited because I'm like, because what this does is it shows us that what we thought was one species is like 10 or like even more than that. It reveals cryptic species. Cryptic species is a word that we use to describe animals that look like really similar. Like you Mm -hmm. can't tell the difference just by looking at them visually, but they're usually found in different places in a forest. They're eating different types of plants. So they're called cryptic species. They they've just happened to evolve to look very similar. But genetic barcoding shows us that actually they're very different. And then when we look at the ecology of those animals, they are different species because they're not interbreeding. So, Tom, do you know if, if Sam Drogi at the National Bee Laboratory is doing any – like I know he – like as they're, – they're taking like super in-depth – depth photos Mm -hmm. of bees to try to start cataloging because it was something they never really had before. So they're trying to create this in-depth visual catalog of, of bees. And I would think that he, I'm just curious. Like, I wish he were on, on this podcast with us. Maybe that's a future, (laughs) a future (laughs) episode. Yeah. I don't know if they're, they're doing that. Okay. Um, the, what, what sparked my mind is, is on the plant side of things, i we complain about your kind of people all the time. <laughs> the, the ones that say, oh, these are actually two different things and not the same changing names on us all the time. Oh, what a pain in the neck. I am not part of that. No, I'm not part of that group that changes names. I also share your frustrations with like going to a book and saying, why did they change the name again? Um, um, <laughs> no, I understand. And I realize for that, the science changes too, because we've, yeah. we've gone through where plants, the taxonomy, the names have changed. And then, they found out later. Oh no, we had it right the first time. Let's let's go back to mm-hmm. the way it was. But it's just very very difficult for the end consumer. You, I I you know the funny thing is, and we talked about this, and it may be like it's not like you get a notice saying this name has <laughs> yeah, changed. Yeah. You just find out somewhere down the road when you start seeing specs come in or or something. Yeah. Like someone may mention, oh, did you hear they changed this? And it's like, oh no, like it's. But we why, never why, knew who. Why they don't I was. get that memo? Yeah, yeah. Who, who is they? That's so, what, that's what we want to yeah, know. Yeah, so the person who's changing the name is most likely a scientist who's working in a museum and who's working with those specimens, and it's literally their job to describe and name species. Okay. And part of the problem with that is, is that there's lots of museums and lots of scientists who have collections from all over the world, and they're dealing within, you know, they're working within this like little bubble. Of these are the samples I have. Um, sometimes they're able to connect with those other museums and other researchers to say, "Do you have this thing? I might have it too." And then they are like, "Okay, good. We didn't name one thing two names." Mm-hmm. Okay. So 
part of the process of this genetic barcoding is the benefit of it is saying, look, this is the genetic barcode of this species. And all you have to do is go through, you know, other types of um, collections or, you know, samples, whatever you're doing, barcode it, compare it to the library and you're good. You don't have to go through this lengthy process of talking to, you know, five, 10 people taking months, sometimes literally years to name and describe something. So that's one of the benefits of it. There's lots of benefits, but that's one of them. How, how long has this technology been a- available? And I guess the, uh, the follow-up to that would be how, how long have we – like since it's been available, have we fully embraced it? Um, I think the lack of being able to fully embrace it might be cost. Okay. So mm-hmm. I envision a world where it's like a tricorder and you pull it out. And you just like put your DNA sample in and it connects to that library and you're good. And anybody can do it and anybody can afford it because it only costs a penny. Right now, if I do a plate of 96. Recording uh, stopped. Recording in progress. It it kicked me off for a second. (laughs) All right. Well, my recording's good. So we're just good. Sorry. You can keep going. No no worries. Um, So where is that? What was I saying? Oh, so if you have, uh, you get your tissue sample. You throw it in your little tricorder device. You pay a penny. You upload your sequence to the library, and the library says, bing, you have a match. Your species is blah, blah, blah. That's the beautiful goal. However, we're not there yet. So this originally developed back in the 1990s. So in 1994, uh, someone named Fulmer developed that CO1 method for diverse metazoan invertebrates. So he was also working with other types of invertebrates. And then... Uh, in 2003, Dr. Paul E. Bear from the University of Guelph in Canada, he developed the CO1 method for identifying species, and he was able to add a phylogenetic analysis. And all that means is that he was able to take that genetic data and figure out how everybody was related to each other genetically. So you can actually trace lines. We've been able to figure out. It's just so exciting. I'll keep going on. But <laughs> you can actually see how different Lepidoptera families are related to one another, which we didn't expect until we had this data. And then in 2004 is when I began working with Dr. Jansen. And again, he envisioned this future where like you just use your little tricorder and it's available to everybody. Even somebody, you can use it in your backyard because that's how you start to get people to care about biodiversity. They're not going to understand it if all I talk about is the genetic sequence. They want to know what's in their backyard, you know. So yep. like, that's kind of where I was coming from um, with this this desire to help people learn more about the world and, around them. And, you know, one of the things that, that Tom and I use all the time, even though we we work with plants every day, like like iNaturalist has become such a wonderful tool because mm-hmm. you could just pull your phone out, take a picture. They yes. they give you at least a pretty close representation, and then other people that that may or may not be experts can weigh into and say, yeah, this is definitely that, mm-hmm. you, or hey, think about this. And it's a great tool that we didn't have at our disposal. You used to have to take a key and key everything out, which yes. which. Takes a really long, yeah. <laughs> a really long time, especially if you're not standing in front of the plant or have a sample of the plant with you oh, to, to so key painful. it all out. Yeah, but <laughs> like for when when you're extracting this DNA chain, how long does that take? That that part of the process take like before you um, you're as sure. you're doing this, is it is it a long process? Has it gotten shorter? Uh, yeah, it's definitely gotten shorter. So when I first started in 2003 or 2004, rather, my apologies. Um, I would remove a leg, I'd put it in a little tube, and I'd send it to Guelph, um, and we'd have to wait maybe six months to a year for a result. Um, When I left Dr. Jansen, we could get our results in like 
a month. And I don't know if that was just like volume, who was in the queue, like, did we have priority? But mm-hmm. yes, the, the, as the primers became um, more refined mm-hmm. and they were able to do it more quickly and then they got more better equipment, all, all that changed. And yeah, it's a pretty fast process. Unfortunately, it costs, if I do 96 tissue samples, it costs me $1,200. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, yeah. and there's a possibility that someone somewhere is sending the same tissue samples in. So someone wastes but that's their money. Okay. okay. All right. Right. Like that's okay if someone sampled the same stream and they're sending in a, a mayfly leg and the same stream that I'm sending a mayfly leg from. Okay. That doesn't necessarily mean that we have the same mayfly. They could have collected it at a different time of year. You know, they could have collected it at a different stretch of the stream. Maybe in the, between those times that we collected, a mayfly from another stream flew in, and he's from a completely different uh, population of mayflies. And so yeah. something else could be revealed there. Awesome. So what other what, – what else have we captured from this? Like what do you find in your work that you've learned the most from from this technology? Um, mostly what we've learned is that like the, one of the very first papers that he published was there was this, um, type of skipper butterfly. It's called the Estraptes fulgurator. Um, and we thought it was one species and it was all over Costa Rica. Like, oh yeah, it's the Estraptes fulgurator. It's the Estraptes fulgurator. So then we barcoded all of the ones that we had, um, in this, we collaborated with the Smithsonian Museum. So he would go and he would get the butterflies from Costa Rica. He'd bring them up here. We'd work with one of the taxonomists. His name's John Burns. He's the best, cutest little old man. I love him to death. And he studies skipper butterflies. And he was on board. He was one of those people who really supported this idea. So where he's like, yeah, let's barcode them all. And what we thought was one species was actually 10. Wow. And over and over again, what we discover is that when we go into these really high um, places of high diversity, what we historically thought was like just one or two species is actually like a whole bunch. The same thing happened with like a fly that was a parasitoid of another type of Lepidoptera, and it turned out to be like 25 species. We just published a paper um, where we redescribed and sometimes uh, affirmed 430 species of wasps, and 13 of those were new to science. Wow. wow. So, you, and a lot of people think that we're, we've run out of species to discover that when you find a new species, it's like this big, big thing, but you're kind of making it seem, make it sound like it's like almost an everyday thing. It's um, oh, yeah. like, oh, it happens absolutely. a lot. Like, I guess, 100%. I guess my next question, and again, I'm just, I'm, I'm just furiously writing, <laughs> writing questions yeah. down. So once, all right, say you, you pull an insect out of um, a local stream and you send it in and now you know that it's there. Is there any follow-up from any organizations monitoring populations and if there's change in those populations over time? Like do you know of any organizations that are doing – like we know that we're finding these things here and that they exist, which is great because how long has it been – like we always say like you don't even know what you've lost if you don't know what you have to begin with. So I'm just curious now that we have this information, even if someone's not doing it, they have the ability to say we should be able to find these here and in what kind of volume and how much biodiversity and is it changing? I would imagine. Is that one of the goals of of this? Yes. So you hit on a really, really important point, and it was something that I was going to talk about, but you've already brought it up, and that's we don't even know what we've lost yet. We don't even know what's out there. The process of like identifying things and describing them and naming them and cataloging takes so long, and barcoding is the streamline to this whole system. Um, the other problem is 
when are they going to follow up? Well, once the data is in the library, it's there forever, right? So the hope is, is that someone will come at a later time um, to compare changes over time. That is another really awesome thing that we can do. Um, the problem is money. It's always money. Who's going to fund that project? Who's going to do all the work for it? Who's going to write those grant proposals? Those are the hiccups that come into, like, those are my speed bumps. Yeah. <laughs> I want I need more money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can, I, can I ask, who is interested in this kind of stuff? Like, where, I don't want you to say, oh, yeah, we're getting X amount of dollars from so-and-so. But, but sure. I, what I, are the organizations like, that are interested in funding these kind of things? Because the first, the first person I thought of was the the Xerces Society, yeah. like I'm like, oh, I would imagine that they would have some interest in this. Um, so we apply for grants from all different kinds of places. Right now, our grant that is focusing on the headwaters of the Upper Delaware River, where we are literally building up that library of genetic sequences, we're going to focus on EPT, which are mayflies, stoneflies, caddisflies. Our grant, uh, we have two grants that are funding this, and one is uh, NIFWIF, which is the National Fish and Wildlife Federation, and then the other one is a Growing Greener grant, and all of those are, again, under the umbrella of the Delaware River Watershed Initiative, and so we're working with partners from there, like Friends of the Upper Delaware River, or um, there's a woman who works out of Seattle, and she just focuses on policy, and our, and our goal is to say, look, we found this amazing stuff here. Mm-hmm. It's worth protecting. We need to go and and talk to the people here, show them all the cool stuff we found, and see if we can get some of those policies moved towards protecting these waterways a little bit better. Um, but again, that funding runs out in 2024. So unless I can get another grant, I'm not able to check that. Ideally, I would love to have a long-term study. The Dr. Jansen had that. Dr. Jansen has been studying Costa Rica for decades and he will continue to do that until like he literally falls over and dies I'm sure but that's the benefit to some of this is that you can track changes over time you can track climate change migrations all those things we could do that we just need the money (laughs) well will the infrastructure bill help you at all as far as getting money yeah I mean it might it depends on you know what funds were allocated for specific types of research you have to frame the question in a way that the people who are supplying the money um, are, are interested in right like so if they're not interested in stream health in the upper Delaware River they're not going to give you that money so yeah. you have to go to the places who like want to fund that type of research yeah and I guess that kind of answers my question in a way because I was I guess it was who's finding this research important, I guess is the way to put it. And it's people who want to protect our streams. like, and, But you need that baseline to know yeah. what you're protecting. So, no, that's very, very interesting. Dude, speaking of, of baseline, do baselines ever change? Like if, if you have something and, and, and you're dealing with something that continuously evolves, I, I don't know if that would affect over time your baseline. Um, so I'm not sure I understand your question. Are you talking about baseline of stream health or baseline of like the genetic code? The genetic code. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, so you can, if, if that CO1 gene mutates and changes over time, yes, you'll be able to track that over time. As soon as it becomes 2% different from the previous code, it's a different species. Oh, all right. Yeah. I didn't know that. So that's, that's that limiting factor. If it's at least 2% different. Yeah. Now, some species, you can go as little as 1%. It depends. You know, again, you're not looking at just the genetic data. One of the things that I get a lot of pushback from, like when this method first came out, people were freaking out. (laughs) They were like so upset. They're like, no, you can't do this. 
And one of the things that they were nervous about is that you're only describing species with their genetic barcodes. And I know some people who are for that. I'm not one of those people because I feel like to understand a species in its entirety, the genetic barcode is just one aspect of it. You have to understand the ecology. You have to understand the biology. You have to understand its interconnectedness with the rest of the world, Um, what it looks like, what it eats, who, you know, all those things I think are important. Um, So the biggest pushback has been from people who don't understand that or who are afraid of, of losing their jobs basically. Well, I, you know, I relate that if you, if you relate that to plants, like for us, we, we just had – Tom and I had a big discussion on provenance because a plant can be native to all 48 states, but that genetic sourcing is important because of different conditions. Uh, you know, like a, the same uh, the same plant may not have the same wetland indicator status throughout the country. It may change right. or it may be adaptable to salt water here but not over here or – yeah. Otherwise, no one would care about provenance. They wouldn't. They wouldn't be like, "Oh, the seed source needs to come within twenty five miles." They'd be like, "Yeah, it doesn't matter. Bring it from Florida." You know, it, right. it obviously makes a difference for cold hardiness and and just yes. what that community has weathered where it survives to make it different from that same plant somewhere else. So I'd imagine, like, I'm curious just in plants what the difference would be in some of that from plants taken from all over the country. Like, and you, I would bet. I would bet. I, I would I would make a bet and I, I would be ninety-nine percent confident that I was right to say that when you have populations of those different plants in different areas where they've adapted very specifically to a different type of environment, they're different species. I can almost guarantee it. Like there's one um, uh, species of moth and we thought it was one thing across the contigu- contiguous US. It's this one here and I cannot remember the name. I can't. My brain stopped. Um, but it's a different species in the Northeast than to the Southwest. And we thought it was all one thing, but they're two different populations. Okay. Really? Yeah. Right. Two different species, rather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that makes sense. That just – see, I'm wondering, do you know – like I, you're working with it or have worked with it with insects. Is it is it happening in, in the plant material world also? I, I don't yes. know. Okay. Yeah, there's a different gene. So it's the, I tried to look it up. I don't know as much about the plant genetic barcoding. And to be clear, this method does work better for some types of animals, uh, organisms than others. So even in my field, it works great with caddisflies, but with mayflies, not always as accurate. Um, So you do have to take that into account. So for plants, it's a different um, gene. So it's like the MATK gene, the RBCL gene. I don't know what any of those mean, but it just is, uh, um, they've worked really hard. Cause when I first started, I remember they didn't have a way to do plants. So the plants is probably now really taking off. And I, I'm assuming that a lot of people are there. When I looked on the website, we have 70,000, uh, barcodes for plants, wow. Wow. 70,000 species. That's yeah, amazing. <clears throat> you know, one of the things, and, and obviously when you talk about, where you would like the technology to be eventually, you know, for us with plants and doing restorations, we're always asked, say, a, a project is in Jamaica Bay, New York, and they'll say we want the provenance of the seed to be within 50 miles of the site that we're restoring so that it's correct, you know, genetic sourcing for the, the seed. <clears throat> now, that's great to require that. 
but it's hard for anyone to really prove that they're doing that. <laughs> so oh, really? because we like you can visit us and we can show you our seed coolers and how we we store the material and how we label it and like and we'll say where we found it all that but not everyone does that or is willing to do that so mm-hmm. they they can just say yeah i did it mm-hmm. and then supply the plant material but there's no real proof so it would be wonderful if there was a way where it could there, you know, there's a scan. They go, no, no, it's not. It's not even close <laughs> to here, you know. And that's the the one hard thing is there. There's a lot of requirements, but there's no way to actually police it. Um, and I don't know if I'll see that in my lifetime. I'm assuming I won't. I'm not as young as I used to be. <laughs> <laughs> we might. I mean, this this method is used. They used to before we even got into the CO one barcoding. They had sequence the genetics of like almost all of the infectious diseases all the bacteria and viruses that was all done and ready and like uploaded into a library somewhere and that's how the cdc and other organizations across the globe like the world health organization they sequence everything so they're able to track diseases over time and i also think it's now being used for um tracking like illegal sale like ivory like is the ivory that you're selling here you know is it like new, where did it come from? You can go back and see where poachers were, like all those things you can do now. You can track hmm. those types of, well, I said it's this, it's not really any type <laughs> of, any type of like organic material that was once alive, as long as it was preserved in a fairly well way, you can sequence the genetic information. Wow. That's, I, I do feel like a little kid uh, and I'm trying to keep it, <laughs> keep it, keep it, keep it on topic. Um, what are other ways that I, you know, I know we have a list of things we want to talk to, but I, I, I sure. think we've answered a good portion of it. Unless you wanted to add, like we, I know we did talk about some of the advantages and the disadvantages. Yeah. Disadvantages being cost or or possibly yeah. time, um, yeah. and obviously there's numerous advantages. Are there things that we haven't mentioned that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So one of the advantages that I really appreciate with genetic barcoding is when I go out to the streams. I need those insects to be a certain age so that all those characteristics are there so that when I look under the microscope, I can identify them. That's not always the case. Also, when you're collecting things, parts just fall off. (laughs) So I don't always have an entire animal. I don't have to worry about that if I'm going to do the barcode because all I need is like one leg or one tissue sample and it'll tell me what that animal is. Um, I can also look at what that animal is eating. You can barcode gut contents. You can take eDNA. So you can like literally take the water out of the stream, filter it down so that you only get like whatever Mm -hmm. was suspended in the water column at that time. You can test for fish. You can test for mussels. You can see if an invasive species is in that stream. You can see if an endangered species is in that stream. Um, You can quantify the biodiversity, right? Like this is what like really gets me excited because I want to know what's there and what's not there. Um, Another disadvantage that we didn't talk about is that the beauty of museums is that we've collected things over time, over hundreds of years. The problem is that we can't always use those specimens because they've been exposed to chemicals or they were killed in a killing jar. You have to, when you collect the DNA from that individual, you have to make sure that you're putting it in a preservative that doesn't degrade the DNA. So a lot of times back in the day, they were putting it in acetone or, or PDB or all those things, and they just they degrade the DNA, and, and a lot of times we can't use those specimens, unfortunately. Say, you know, that that brings up an interesting point for me. Say someone's 
backing up to the Delaware River and they're spraying their property a few times a year for for chemicals for their lawns or to kill mosquitoes. Um, does that affect what you're trying to accomplish as far as determining? Like, will you when you look at that specimen, are you going to know that that it was subject to that or? Or does it no, change? Not it? Okay. All right. Yeah. Unfortunately, no. I, the way that I'd be able to tell that is by checking water chemistry, not so much the genetic sequence. Those mm-hmm. types of um, responses to changes, the immediate changes, aren't always reflected in the ge- genetic code. The de- genetic code is all it tells me is what that organism is. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Do you mind explaining a little bit more of how they they find the stuff just by taking a water sample? And know what's in the water because I've heard oh, of that being done good. before, but I didn't really understand how it worked. Um, so that's the chemistry section. <laughs> um, so what we do is we take four liters of water. It's a water cube, mm-hmm. and then they filter it out. And they're going to look at um, total nitrogen, total phosphorus, the percent of dissolved oxygen in there. Um, some of the chemistry section also looks at the percent of dissolved organic carbon also in the water column, which tells them other types of information mm-hmm. that I'm not always clear about once you start talking about chemistry like my eyes glaze over (laughs) (laughs) um uh, but we also do like turbidity we check ph Mm -hmm. we check the temperature and when you look at uh, again when you look at changes over time we and because we've been doing this work for so long there's baselines for all this information there's a baseline ph that a, a stream should be at there's a baseline temperature that a stream should be at do all those things so when we measure those things, we can compare them to what it should be, and then it help, allows us to make an assessment of, is this stream fair, is it good, or is it poor? Mm-hmm. I guess I was asking more about the um, – that was a really good ex- explanation. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> about, like, how they can tell through the DNA sequencing what, like, fish are in a stream. Oh, I see. Okay, so if you're looking at the water and you filter it out – they're going to specifically use a primer that amplifies the fish DNA for mm-hmm. a specific species. So you have to, it's not like, there is a thing called metabarcoding where you like, you take a sample and it's all smushed together and you just extract all the DNA. I don't know exactly how that works, but there is a, a method where they will extract the tissue, extract the DNA from whatever you're giving them, whether it be schmutz or water or whatever. And Say you want to look for a fish. Well, I want to look for these three species of fish. So you take the primers for those three species of fish and you send it into that DNA. If it amplifies and if it's like finds it, then yeah, you have those species of fish. If it doesn't, then it's probably not there. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. Because I've, okay. I've heard of those studies before where people would take, or I guess do what you just described, and then yeah. they'd f- say, well, we're getting DNA from a fish that we didn't know existed in this stretch of river or this stream or, or whatever. Right. And so it must be here because we found the DNA from it. But I just, it kind of sounds far-fetched in a way. It's like, oh, how, how do they figure that out? But I guess it it's, makes sense. Yeah, here in Pennsylvania um, and actually across the country, um, the EPA and local departments of environmental protection are doing specifically eDNA work because what you can do is you go to the stream, you actually take tissue samples from the fish that are there, but you're also taking water to see if there's any fish that are there that you haven't collected. And then you compare those two data sets to see Mm -hmm. how they match up. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I guess my looking, looking even past that a little bit, I guess my next question, and it made me think of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with the answer being 42, like it's 42. Well, what was the question? You know, did the creation of genetic barcoding create 
questions that we don't have the answers to. Now that you have this technology, we're like, wait, this is great, but we need this to make better understanding of that. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Is there, is is there, (laughs) 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 well, I would imagine that there's, there, there has to be some kind of gaps that you're like, this is great, but if I, if we could figure out this, we could make more understanding. Are there, is there like leading a technology or something being created that we don't know about that will go hand in hand with this to help, help further the, the information that we gather? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, when I first started, they didn't have any type of handheld device at all. And now you can buy a handheld device. It's about $1,000. And you can just take your tissue sample and put it in there. It's still really, really expensive to use. So it's not really, you know, available for the public. It's not like you can buy a DVD player now for 40 bucks. Like that blew my mind. You know what I mean? And I think we're in that, <laughs> we're in that same stage where things are very, very expensive now. And as the technology improves, things will get cheaper. Um, I'm not privy to all the specifics of the technologies that they're developing, but I would assume that they're refining those specific animal groups. Like, for example, worms. When I started, they could not figure out worms. Worms were some of the most difficult ones to sort out, but they finally cracked that, and that's moving forward. And again, with plants, I think, you know, as we move forward and as they keep teasing apart those different questions, they're going to be able to refine the, the methods even more. It's funny because we were just having a conversation about worms and one of our coworkers asked me today if there's such a thing as a native worm. And I'm like, I, I honestly don't know. I, That's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I still don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean – I'm sorry, I don't Kat. know. It, you, there's not a many many people who study worms, so I think you need okay. to talk to a worm scientist. But I would think that it's true with most other things like invasive mussels or other types of fish. You know, if someone brings it over and it's on a plant, you know, it could wreak havoc. But no one, not a lot of people I know care about worms. I'm not saying those people don't exist. They're beautiful, wonderful people. <laughs> we I know one guy who really them. cares about worms a lot, but I don't think he's a worm scientist by any means. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> but you're you're – your example that you gave made me – like I chuckled because I was thinking my first cell phone was $2.50 a minute, and that was only yeah. in like a, a three-state radius. And now yeah. you know, I can talk all day long on it, and it's affordable. So hopefully over time, this technology becomes readily available. They're just – I guess there has to be a want and a need for it, and there's Correct. definitely a need for it. I think more people need to know about it. They don't know they want it. They want it, but they don't know about it. Or know that they need it yet. Yeah, one hundred percent exactly. Yeah. Um, Tom, were you going to ask something? Did no, I, I wasn't. So we talked like with everything you said. I'm like, yeah, I'm on board. I'm all for this. Are there mm-hmm. are there people that take the opposite stance? Are there people that that don't agree or 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 don't care about genetic? Who's shaking coming? their fist at you, <laughs> saying you're up to no good? <laughs> um, it's amazing to me that no matter how many times I give this talk. I have a talk and I talk about genetic barcoding. There's at least one dude in the in the audience who like raises his hand and tries to like tear it down the whole way. Is it the and same guy? <laughs> Every, uh, it's, it's not the same guy. Like I wish it would because that would be a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> be like, oh, hey, I see you. I know what you're going to ask me. No, it's a different guy every time. I've had one experience that was actually very bizarre and, and not that fun where – this person came up to me, I was with my children and like verbally assaulted me and like tore me down about like barcoding and how, you know, if this isn't this and this isn't that. And just, you know, reamed me out in front of a group of people, which included my children was not very nice to me. And then at the end of all that said that they used genetic barcoding in one of their studies. And I was like, 
what was that? <laughs> um, but that's a kind of outside the norm. The norm is that people just don't understand what it is. They think that like, if you turn in this tissue sample, it's going to pick up all these other DNA sequences. And that doesn't happen. We're looking at one gene. We know that one gene is reliable for this specific type of animal. Any animal that you use, you're only going to be looking at the one gene. You're going to use primers that specifically amplify that one gene. So they're not going to amplify other types of DNA fragments that might be in your sample. Um, And I think, too, there's a lot of pushback. When we published that paper with the 430 species of wasps, Twitter blew up and they were like, oh, this is horrible. And what people were worried about was that you're only using the genetic sequence to describe the species. Again, I agree. You shouldn't just use a genetic sequence to describe the species. You should be caring about their ecology, biology, where they come from, those things. So um, if they had read the paper, they would see the argument there um, that included with the genetic barcoding information, there was also, um, you know, pictures, uh, ecology, all those things. So. so I guess my biggest question is, as you're doing genetic barcoding in a specific area and learning about that area, obviously you're learning about what's there that shouldn't be there. <laughs> like I'm thinking about in yeah. terms of biodiversity and what's there that should be there. And, right. and if you're like, are you calculating biodiversity just overall or like, hey, like our native biodiversity should be here, but it's more non-native than native. Uh, as far as insects, is that that's a question in? that comes later? Yeah, like okay. that's a question that comes later. That's a question that I absolutely think should be asked. I'm at the stage now where we're just doing the building up of the library of sequences. We're just doing a baseline, figuring out what's there. So once we know what's there, then we can come back in a couple of years, check it again, and say, "Oh, this 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 species is new, or this species is no longer present." And that could mean that there's changes over time in the ecosystem, or it could just be a, a small blip in the variation of the population and a wind blew by and the, the adult mayfly couldn't lay its eggs in that stream. So that's why you need long-term studies. You need decades of data. Like that's why if I could like, if I could get a Christmas wish list, give me grant money. So I can just do this. <laughs> well, cause it made me um, think like, as you said that too, it made me think, well, maybe there's, there's more non-native insects at this part of the, the stream because there's no native biota left. It's instead of, Pickerel weed and duck potato. Right. It's yeah, it's phragmites, you know, and it's yeah. you, and that's why you're you're getting that change. So it's a it's just one piece of the puzzle, and it's a big puzzle, and right. it amazes yeah. still the amount of information that you're extracting from this, and how how many more questions <laughs> that that piece of information brings. And it's oh yeah, it's yeah. like I I'm overwhelmed. Just by the information that that you've given us, I'm sorry. Like, no, it's, it's okay. But and, and but being a person of science and doing this, I would imagine there's got to be times where you're overwhelmed too. Going, well, yeah, I now know this, but what does that mean? Yeah, so. yeah. You have to stay focused on the question that you're asking at any one time. When all those other questions pop up, as inevitably they will, you have to table them to the side until you can like you know get the funding or a graduate student to tackle that question. Okay. Um, you know, those are the those are the things that happen all the time. I, I wish I had an army of graduate students and, you know, a, a really <laughs> big grant where I could, like, do all those things that really matter and answer all those questions, yeah. You know, one the, another question, and it's it's I'm kind of looking at questions we have, and they're, they're morphing in my head, too, because sure. I'm wondering, like, I'm thinking have, like, big chemical companies that are using chemicals to – 
to eliminate certain insects, are they using any of this information to find out how their product is affecting one thing and not another? Yeah. The thing that comes up for me when you say that is Monsanto and they will, they're copywriting genetic uh, codes. Mm -hmm. Wow. Right. So when they make corn and it's corn that has some type of pesticide in it and they've, you know, merge those two things together, they now say, well, I have a copyright on this. So if someone goes, if that corn, they're like, okay, we're going to put the corn in the field. The corn's not going anywhere. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Um, So when that corn inevitably, those pollen, when it inevitably goes to the farmer's field to the uh, adjacent to it, and that farmer now has that Monsanto corn, but he didn't pay Monsanto for that corn. Mm-hmm. Monsanto then can then go in and say, hey, I have a copyright for this. and You had need to pay me money. And the farmer's like, I can't control the wind. Yeah. You know, those are the things that scare me when companies want to monetize it. I don't want to monetize it. I just want to say that it has value. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it makes oh, yeah. it makes perfect sense. And that's yeah. always, you know, without without intentionally doing it. I I tend to like take a stance against big business <laughs> big business a lot on this saying well they have the money and the advertising behind it and all this and then they're yeah. because they have those things they can control yeah. it but control it to make but money. But it, it does seem like it could be and obviously this would be financial motive for them but it does seem like they could use this information to and maybe not exactly what we're talking about here but use information similar to this to make a more effective less um, a product with less bycatch, bycatch is not the right word, but like it, something that's a lot more targeted. Yes. And so it could be used for something that's, I think depending on what the target is, potentially really good. But right. uh, I don't know if that's happening. Well, to me, it's so. it, it's like, all right, the, the internet was created and, and you think of, oh, this is such a wealth of information that we have at our fingertips that we didn't have. But at the time, you weren't thinking, eventually, is someone going to know that I'm having a conversation about an air fryer and put that in my browsing history when I'm on social media? Like eventually that happens, and that's why I'm, I'm wondering if that has started to happen in this, this field. Like and, and, and kind, of, kind of, yeah. It's, yeah. Kind of, a little bit, yeah. I mean you do have to worry – my hope is that there's enough scientists now on board with this idea, and we've done enough work. There's scientists all over the globe who are barcoding all different sorts of animals that we have a repository of knowledge and, and data that we can push back on that a little bit. Um, you know, again, it's it's all about what kind of uh, friends and money that you have. But, you know, like the University of Guelph, I think, has been really successful in doing this because in the very beginning, the government of Canada just gave them a, a whole bunch of money and they just started to build up the library and they got, I want to say, oh, I can't remember if it was five or 10 years of funding that they just, they just blanketed them. Wow. With, uh, yeah. Mm. And they were able to accomplish a lot. They're on a different little bit, of, you know, different kind of um, situation now with everything that's going on, but that's the kind of support projects like this need. So what is and, – and we've kind of talked about this. What is the future of genetic barcoding? What can we expect in, in the near future with genetic barcoding? Um, for me, I think that we can expect to see um, the ability to make the ca- a stronger case for climate change as we observe different species migrating across 
you know, geographical ranges. Um, I think we can make a case for um, preservation of ecosystems, um, doing better at uh, restoration projects. Like you said, making sure that when you're putting those native plants in, that's the actual native plant that you want to put in there. Those are important. Um, The other parts too are probably from the agricultural side, like when imports come in um, and you want to check and make sure, are the mangoes free of pests, you know, and instead of like blanketing them with pesticides, how about we just see if that caterpillar that's on it really is an invasive species, you know, like we don't have to, I will say like just the FYI, I know people who work who do this work and like wash everything off you guys. <laughs> they just they blanket everything with pesticides. As soon as it comes in the ports, just wash everything. <laughs> you know, but it still amazes me that given that you still have spotted lanternfly coming in, you still have, and now they're yeah. not necessarily coming in on agricultural products, but you still have, right. I, but that amazes me that they haven't taken that one step further. Like, Oh, we're just going to spray, you know, all these pallets with, with uh, insecticides or, or something yeah. like maybe they are, maybe, maybe that's the future of that. Um, who, who would you say, and I know you mentioned a few people that you work with. Is there, are there any specific people that are like the, the leaders in this technology right now that are really pushing the limits or, or coming up with a lot of new information? Um, yeah, we're working with Merdad Hajibabe from the university of Guelph and he's really pioneered, looking at streams and freshwater ecosystems and using barcoding to discover, you know, your bacterial flora and fauna, your algae, your macroinvertebrates. I don't know that he's looking at the macro fights, which are the plants like, you know, cattails or whatever, um, but he is looking at the um, algae and diatoms. Um, and of course, he's connected to the University of Guelph. They did everything. GenBank and um, oh, there's a couple others like a uh, there is a big push to digitize everything, whether, no matter what you have or if you have a barcode. So those two are the ones that stand out in my mind um, as being the, the biggest repositories of genetic sequences. And how, how did you find your career path to do what you do? Was, was, um, is this something like, yeah. like as, a, as a young child, like was this something that always <laughs> – like obviously not genetic <laughs> barcoding, but – Something that's always interest you, or how did you find your way to do what you're doing today? Um, so when I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to watch anything besides like PBS, or um, my grandma also let me watch um, Turner Classic movies. So I was either watching like <laughs> Ethel Merman sing like you know big songs, or I was watching Marty Stauffer's Wild America, you know, and like mm-hmm. the Nova specials, and of course David Attenborough, um, and they drew me into this idea of like really understanding that the natural world is actually a very complex place and there's like so much to know. And that to me was like, that blew my mind. And I always wanted to do something um, to do with nature. Um, But I also didn't have any female scientists on those shows. Like you didn't see women in science on the television. So I would watch movies like contact or the abyss. And those were like unapologetically feminist women who are in charge and who are like, we're going to go tackle this problem and we're going to, you know, use science to do it. And they really inspired me to, to, you know, try and be a scientist. When I got to college, um, I was lucky. I had a lot of good mentors. Um, my one mentor that in undergrad was Dr. Maya Ebenden, and she taught me my entomology class. And I took entomology because I was like, well, it's an elective. Who cares? I don't have to worry about it. You know, it'd be super easy. Um, and she was so excited about bugs that it was kind of infectious. And she was great at supporting me. And she saw that, like, I understood it. Like, that's the other thing, too. I think when you get to college, you don't always know what you want to do. But those professors who really care, 
they see when you're like, when that like little spark goes off in your brain, you're like, oh, this makes sense. And it made sense to me. And so she was able to like support me and, you know, push me in the direction of, well, you should take this class or this class or this class. Um, uh, there's a couple other mentors, you know, here in the academy, Dr. Gail House, who, um, who was very kind. He supported me and, and taught me a whole bunch of stuff that he didn't have to, quite frankly. And of course, Dan and Winnie. And I got the job with Dan Jansen and Winnie Hallbacks at Penn on a bet, actually. It's a funny story. So <laughs> I, I had gotten my undergraduate degree and I couldn't find a job in science. And so my best friend at the time, she was going into MD PhD and she's like, dude, she says, just start to email and call those professors at your local universities. You'll get a job in the lab. I'm like, there's no way that's going to work. That's never going to happen. She's like, I bet you $100. I bet you $100. If you email at least five professors, you will get a job. And I was like, all right, cool. That's fine. Easy hundred bucks for me. <laughs> and so I emailed five professors and one wrote back and that was Dr. Jansen. And he, I showed up at his office and he hired me on the spot. Wow. He was like, I'm doing this barcoding thing. You have to help me. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Um, and it became one of those things where it just excited me. It helped me understand nature in another way. And it really guided me, you know, to what I'm doing today. And again, you know, I mean, I only lost a hundred dollars. That That was a good bet to lose. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is amazing. And that is for anyone listening who wants to get into really any field is taking that leap can go, go a long, long way. I, when I was uh, in grad school, I wanted to, I played lacrosse in college. I wanted to coach lacrosse. And it's amazing just, like, reaching out to people and then showing up how easy it is to get where you want to go. It's just – I know. But I remember sending that first email. It took a lot of guts to, like, type up because I'm like, he's just going to say no. He's probably not even going to respond. And then I sent it, and then I showed up, and he's like, oh, yeah, we could use this face-off coach, so you're going to do it. (laughs) And that was it. You you know, it's funny. When I – at one point, just as a hobby, I did concert photography and – uh, concert reviews and music reviews, and the first time, you know, I I wasn't qualified to do that. I wasn't a photographer. I wasn't a writer, you know. But I was writing because it interested me. And the first show that I wanted to go to that sold out, I'm like, well, I wonder, you know, I have this blog. I wonder if I write to the publicist, if they'll actually take it serious. I'm like, what do I have to lose, you know? Otherwise, I'm not getting into this concert, and. I, I wrote a, an email to the publicist, and they went, great, here is – there will be a photo pass and a ticket for you at the show. And then I did that, and, and then they, they contacted me a couple of days later, and they went, did you did you go? And I'm like, yeah, and they're like, did you write a review? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, can we see it? <laughs> so I forwarded it, and they're like, this is great. Here's five more shows that we would like you to review. So it's like, wow, wow like this is – yeah, and it's like – it's something that had I never tried – it just wouldn't yeah. never have happened, yeah. you know, and yeah. I have a lot of great experiences. From so that's that. just a word of wisdom is sometimes you just got to take a chance to – you're already sitting on a no anyway, so what's the worst that can happen? You're in the same boat. You lost 100 right. bucks, exactly. but at least you had a job to pay the $100. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's right. And and my husband got me this great uh, bracelet for Christmas, and on the inside it says your anxiety is lying to you. So, like, don't listen to your anxiety. <laughs> always lie to you you know at least try it's okay if that if you try it and you don't like it it's okay if you try and you don't make it try something else that's okay are you gonna buy me one of those i might have to get you (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'll I'll reach out to your husband and see where he ordered it from maybe he went to jared right (laughs) changing the subject (laughs) changing the subject a little bit 
as a woman in science, did you hit any roadblocks along the way because of your, your gender? Well, that's a whole nother podcast. We've actually we, – we did have one on women in ecology, and it was a yeah. real eye-opener yeah. to, to Tom, and my, Tom and myself. So we, we yeah. love knowing that – like if that was difficult for you um, at any point in your career. Yeah, you, you have to make sure that you find the right mentors who support you no matter what your gender is. Um, the two big hurdles for me, I think, were one, my anxiety, but the other was having children. And what normally happens to women in academia and science of any kind is that you have kids and then you just kind of fall off the earth. You know, the support to help you pursue your career and to um, continue your studies while having and caring for children isn't there. That infrastructure is not in place. It, it just sucks. I'll be honest. It just kind of sucks. Um, so when I had children, um, I was doing my master's degree when I was pregnant with my first child. And once I had him, all I could do was write the final thesis. And then after that, I was just, I didn't realize I was just exhausted all the time. You know, like you're either like taking the baby to daycare, you're running to your job, or, you know, I was just grateful at the time that I had a job, but I couldn't do more. I couldn't go to conferences. I couldn't join societies. I couldn't write papers, you know, like those things have come later in my life now that my children are entering into their teenagehood, you know? So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a big obstacle. You're not always given, you're not always seen. I think that's the other thing too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. I don't even know if that came up when, when we did the women in ecology, if that point came up. Uh, Actually, someone, did, yeah. someone, someone, someone did bring up how hard it was to find maternity clothes, maternity field clothes. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I, that's what I was bounced back to. I'm like, but I don't think we dove into that that, that aspect, aspect of at it. All. Well, maybe we we are planning on doing a part two. So if you'd like to be a part of that, we'd love to have you on that. I would love that. I I am a co-founder of the 500 Women Scientists Philly Pod, and we're a group of um, women and non-binary people who are often overlooked in science, and we want to, uh, we offer each other networking support and um, try to amplify each other's voices. So if you don't want to talk to me, you'd like to talk to somebody else, I can always put the call out and ask someone else too. That is I know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have one friend, she's my co-leader, and she has a PhD in astrophysics. She is one of the smartest people I know. She works in a graduate student center because she can't find a job. Wow. You know, like there's there's uh, obstacles that we have to face that men in science don't, you know. Um, and, I'm, and I'm pretty privileged. I work in ecology, and I'm a white lady, so I don't have a lot to deal with, mm-hmm. if I'm honest. Well, we, we definitely want to promote your podcast and, and steer people your way if they have questions or want to learn more or hear more about it. So um, I know you said the name of it. Where can they listen? Is there a website attached that we can put it's, in our show? It's now? actually not a podcast. It's just oh. a group that we have. I'll send oh, okay. you the website. Okay, yeah, yeah, great. I'll send you the website. And um, we do outreach. We do, we've do. we worked at the Philadelphia Science Festival, and it was still going on. We've done that a couple of years. Um, our goal is just to spread the word of science and, you know, show what a scientist looks like. So I can send that information over to you. We would love um, that. Yeah. And what's yeah. the name of it again? The 500 Women Scientists Philly Pod. All right. Awesome. Awesome. We'll definitely include all that information. So if you can send us that, we'll we'll make sure all that's in the, the show notes. Cool. I will. Thank you. Um, so given that you've had, you know, you started off with genetic barcoding and you're doing what you're doing now. What's your, what is your favorite part of your job? Oh, I get to look at bugs all day. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> do you do you enjoy field work more? Do you enjoy more lab work? Um, I like that I get to do both. I think doing just one all the time can get a little bit boring. So it's it's kind of amazing. I get to see some of the most beautiful places in the world. Um, you know, we went to uh, the uh, you just saw the Delaware River. It's like a three hour drive from here, and the streams were just amazing huge waterfalls and moss growing on the rocks and the water's flowing and there's forest everywhere oh it's great (laughs) awesome awesome i think i need more field work tom yeah yeah. that's that's up to you friend (laughs) (laughs) um who for for professionally who is your biggest inspiration oh um gosh that's hard i a lot a lot living or non-living sure sure um that would probably be my boss's wife, Dr. Winnie Hallwax. Um, she's like this quiet, strong person who like weathers anything and who is just so underestimated. And she's, oh, she's a powerhouse. I love her. She supported me in almost everything. She was always there to talk to me. And, you know, she's great. Um, that is awesome. Tom, do you have? Be- no, I'm. I'm about wrapped up. I there's like my a, head I shouldn't swim. say That's there's nothing. Actually, my, there's too much to ask, <laughs> and then we have time for. It. Yeah, my but head yeah. is swimming right now. I'm trying to like get it all together. Yeah. Um, so we always end with one question, but we're willing to. We're always willing to deviate. So we we yeah. try to make it a hard question. Typically, it's what's your native favorite native plant, which is a very simple question, but a very hard question to answer especially if you're a plant lover but we will give you the opportunity if you'd rather pick your favorite insect i i have one of both so my favorite insect is probably dragonflies just because they're so awesome and like like i want to say badass but i know that's we're trying to keep things you know (laughs) no you could say that you could say that that's fine yeah they're just they're awesome predators whether they're in the water on the wing they're amazing creatures i have a lot of respect for them um and then my favorite plant is actually flocks um, and okay. I have to say, the reason why I bought it in the first place was because of Dr. Phlox from Star Trek. And <laughs> then I planted it in my garden. I was like, oh, my God, I love this plant. It's beautiful. I get little purple flowers every year. When it's not flowering, it's a beautiful green um, you know, bed in the one section of the garden. It kind of like spread out and took over. I love it. It has a very nice texture. Like I love yes. the the feel and flow of Phlox. And that's a great show. I don't think anyone has said that on the so podcast either. yet. So. I will share a little secret off the topic since the word badass came up. That's totally (laughs) non-related. But my youngest son, for up until about two weeks before he was born, his middle name was going to be badass. Did I ever share that? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think Uh, you shared it on here, but you've told me before. (laughs) But his mother changed her mind, and then I ended up telling him when he was – he's – just about to turn 19. I think he was about 17 when I shared that with him. And he was like, what? Wait, really? That could have been my middle name? Like, can I change it to that? I'm like, you can change it to whatever you want. Like, that was – like, what kid wouldn't have wanted – like, what's your name? Like, he would have been able to say Cole Badass Chismar. Like, that would have been awesome. <laughs> but it wasn't to be. So I'm like, now you have the opportunity to name your your – first child give them the middle name badass <laughs> yeah, we'll see yeah, who the first one that gets to, to pull that one off <laughs> um so um we always wrap up with a final thought and and tom and i will do this as well but we give you the floor first and this is your space you can promote, promote something you can uh summarize you can talk about something that we haven't even talked about but you can use it 
the, the time and space however you'd like to, and we give the floor to you now. Sure. Um, so I was thinking about what to say, and for me, it's a David Attenborough quote, because, of course, David Attenborough. And he did this amazing documentary series called Life in the Undergrowth, and I highly recommend it. <clears throat> it focuses on insects and other types of macroinvertebrates all over the world. And his last quote in the end of the series talks about insects and he says if humans were to disappear overnight the rest of the world we'd get on it would get on pretty well we'd go on but if insects were to disappear the land's ecosystems would collapse just food for thought that is a fantastic fantastic quote i love that i I truly love that mine kind of follows that quote a little bit is uh so i like to fish every once in a while and i've wanted to get into fly fishing for a long time and i'm hoping i'm going to be able to do that this coming year and um but as you may know a lot of the insects that you're talking about are like super important for for fly fishing and just fishing in general like so your mayflies and and um i can't remember the other one off the top of my head now i'm blanking but they're super important for fish and that's when you're fly fishing you're just fishing in general you're often trying to mimic those kind of ins or you're timing it up with insect patches or you're you're mimicking those insects with the flies that you tie and um it just kind of highlights that the whole food chain kind of relies on that. It's the fish are relying on those insects and then people and other animals are relying on the fish and it just builds all the way up from there. They're just at the very bottom. Well, I guess plants are at the very, very bottom, but then the insects are the ones that kind of translate it to, to the rest of us. So it's really, really neat. And it's something, the whole barcoding thing, so I had no clue was even really happening. It's just... <laughs> blows me away i guess my my final thought is just with how i'm feeling right now with how much i don't know that never stop craving knowledge had we kept to what the original plan was for this podcast to be about native plants we would have missed out on a whole mm-hmm. mess of learning and great information and and really broadening ourselves yeah as, and it what's really important sorry to cut you off your no, that's okay. is how much it ties together this is yeah we're native plants healthy planet but this is a key component of the healthy planet part and the plants tie into it but it also ties the rest of everything together it's it, you don't can't just have one you can't, no. you can't just have native plants without having the insects that go along with them and you can't just have the insects without having the plants and you can't just have the fish without having the insects you can't it, it's all tied together and important in its individually but the sum is greater than its parts. <laughs> yeah, once you have a greater understanding of what native plants mean, it's hard to ignore all the other factors mm-hmm. in that greater understanding. So don't stop learning. Don't just say I like this and that's all I, I care about. We've grown so much, and I appreciate everyone that's listened to this podcast from the beginning and grown along with us and the questions that everyone brings to us. And our learning – this episode is a very um, – uh, what's the word I'm looking for? selfish for us because mm-hmm. we wanted to learn more about it <laughs> you know and it's um and i think those are always the best episodes because this takes us in so many other great directions and even application not just you know the 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 nitty gritty and what we need to learn but just the overall applications and and where it takes us like when we had greg tepper on from west laura mm-hmm. hole cemetery about natural uh cemetery sites and things like that it's it just starts to change your life so once learning stops, everything stops. Please take what you can, continue to crave it, and and move on. 
There you go. <laughs> I think that's it. Do you have any other questions? No, for- that's it for me. So right. that will wrap it up. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Tanya Dapke from the Academy of Natural Sciences. For more information, uh, you can visit our website. We'll have a link to what uh, the website that we were talking about earlier. That we never got URL for. <laughs> Thanks, friend, for, for not you're, filling you're out for me. You're welcome. <laughs> so, but it'll be in our show notes how you yes. can learn more about uh, what she is doing. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by, by uh, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Wow, we're Thanks, we're having trouble. No problem. Yeah, Wait, we're not done day. yet. Don't go anywhere no, yet. Um, no. <laughs> we we want to give a big thank you to the egocentric plastic men for contributing our theme music. Make sure you stream or buy their songs wherever you consume music. They're playing live music probably in and around the Maniunk area right now. So if you're in the Philly area, make sure you go see them live because uh, live music is back in Philly. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Um, also, Instagram, Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet. You can call us at 215-346-6189, and you, I'll repeat that, 215-346-6189. That's our question and comment line. Ask a question or leave a comment. When we play it on a future episode of The Buzz, we'll answer it to the best of our ability. And uh, let's not forget the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. It just keeps growing. The conversations keep getting better, and uh, I, I couldn't be more proud of our community over there. Yeah. So you can buy our Native Plants Healthy Planet T-shirts at our website, www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. There's a link right at the top. It'll take you to a Teespring store. We aren't keeping any of the money. It's all going to restoration projects um, with the nonprofits that a lot of – many of them have been on our podcast. So when you buy a T-shirt, not only are you going to look – uh, awesome in your new t-shirt Stylish. and spread a great message it's also going to support uh, conservation and restoration in some way you can listen to the native plants healthy planet podcast at on apple podcast spotify stitcher podbean iHeartRadio, even alexa you can listen to it just about anywhere you can find podcasts um, when you do if you're able to please leave a five-star review that goes a long long way you can do that on spotify now as well mm-hmm. as apple Podcasts. and if you right, do a little write-up with that review Fran and I are checking, and we're going to be giving away that Yeti tumbler. Um, what was it? Episode 100, we're going to have the winner. With so. the MagSafe lift. Yeah, with the MagSafe lift. It's one of the fancy ones. Yeah, so. you, yeah. <laughs> you're definitely going to want that. So uh, we really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thanks again, everyone. Tanya, thank you so much. Thank you. Like, thank I'm going to I'm gonna be worthless for the rest of the day now because I'm going to be walking out the door going, guess what we learned today? And you won't get paid for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> That's the case. Exactly. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, next week we have a Buzz episode coming up, so make sure you tune in for that. Uh, until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.